Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Today's episode is a bit different than normal. I'm lucky enough to feature another interview, and if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourself. My name is Sarah Head, and I'm an archaeologist. You are also the host of both the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and Paranormal Archaeology. I am. I am. Uh, Paranormal Archaeology is only about, I think it'll be a year old in October. And it doesn't have a ton of episodes, but the ones I do have up, I'm pretty happy with. Archie Fantasies has been going strong, well, strongish for six years, I think. If I recall correctly, it was a blog before that, because I do recall reading the blog yes. when I was living in Santa Cruz, which was much longer back than that. Yeah, the Archie Fantasies as an entity has been around for 11 going on 12 years. I started as a blog on blog spots. As did so many of us. I mean, you can still find that site. It's still up. And then when I migrated, I moved over to WordPress and uh, <laughs> WordPress was fine, but they've changed their, the way you write a blog post now. And I freaking hate it. I just, I cannot stand it. So I've actually switched the blog again to the Patreon account because you can blog on Patreon without having to have people be members in order to view it. So you can just follow a Patreon account and not be a paying member. Um, so that's what I've done. I've moved the blog over there. The podcast was already going through the Patreon anyway. So with the, the new setup for the podcast, we're now going through Anchor because it's free. And yeah, so between Anchor and Patreon, we've moved everything over that way. And it's, I think it's going to be easier for people who like to read and listen to the various medias that we put out. We also have a YouTube channel that I kind of, I've been trying to put more stuff out on that. Uh, we had a big push of videos for December, which we called Dirtmus. And I keep saying we as if there's more than one of us, but there is <laughs> the, the collective entity known as Archie. I prefer plural pronouns because there's many of me in here. It's the royal we. Exactly. I sat down this year and planned out each month to have a different theme for videos and for the podcast. So each month, I mean, we're still going to have episodes as normal, but each month there's going to be a kind of a theme just to give me an idea of what I need to be doing each month. Now we're going to speak primarily about paranormal archaeology, but because archaeological fantasies is a long running thing and you're delving into pseudo archaeology is, I think, very interesting. I just wanted to give you a chance to mention that which thank you for doing so. I have watched some of the videos. They're fun. I do recommend them. The podcast I do highly recommend, and you've got a fairly large back catalog. So anybody yeah. who is interested in pseudo-archaeology, you don't just go into debunking nonsense, although you do a fair amount of that, but you also discuss the context in which the um, nonsense comes about. The past few years, we've had Ken Fader and Jeb Card on the show. Mm -hmm. And before we had Jeb, we, it was just Ken and I, and we do have other hosts come on, but we've always tried to be very, when it comes to both the paranormal and debunking bad archaeology, and not even debunking, but dealing with the fringe, it's easy to laugh and go, ha ha ha, you're, you're crazy, ha ha ha, that's this, the, the, no, no one sane would believe that. It's easy to do that, but it's not always necessarily true, and you don't know my point was, is that a lot of the people on the fringe are not actually crazy, even though they have very unconventional ideas and beliefs. Mm -hmm. they're, they're quite actually with it for the most part, which is kind of the more terrifying end of it. Yeah. 
one of the things that um, fascinates me about belief in ghosts and so on is that a lot of people who don't believe in any paranormal things like to think that they're the normal ones. But actually, right. if you look at the surveys of psychological literature, those of us who don't hold paranormal beliefs, we're the weirdos. Yeah. And it's very, well, it's because it's ingrained in society in general. And especially yeah. when you look at cultural beliefs. Um, yeah. And I'm not just saying like non-European, non-white cultures, because it's very easy to romanticize or even to coin a term, not a term, uh, uh, Orientalism. I'm not coining that one. I have not talked to human beings in a while. <laughs> you know, ironically, um, I just finished reading Orientalism this morning. By side. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's pretty relevant even today. It is. Especially if you spend any amount of time on the internet. But a lot of uh, European cultures, like uh, the Germanic cultures, Celtic cultures, they still have very, uh, some of the Swedish cultures, they still have very strong beliefs in like land alfar, mm -hmm. the concept of fairies, concept of creatures that live or are part of the woods or the land, ghosts that haunt graveyards and or burial mounds. It, it's, it's very ingrained in our, the culture we grow up in. And even here in America, I mean, like how many of us have a crybaby bridge? Oh yeah. Or, or a road where if you stop your car, and put it in neutral little tiny whatevers will come push your car for you i mean that's very very common i have a story pretty much every state i've ever been in has a story like that yeah almost every state has its special monster du jour you know like bigfoot mothman i forget i think it's called the squiggly higgly here in, in pennsylvania it's a creature <laughs> that's so ugly that if someone looks at it it'll turn into a puddle of water out of embarrassment it's my favorite creature. That, that is delightful. I know. I was just like, oh, poor thing. I would be nice to it. But apparently it's just like, that's its thing. A lot of people have like the cats. I think in Virginia, it was a, some kind of cat monster that was scream. And you, you knew it was there because it would scream. And I'm like, it's called a fox. Mm -hmm. But, you know. Here in the Western U.S., there's very few rivers that don't have a La Llorona story associated with them. Yeah, exactly. Although that develops from Mexican culture. Mm -hmm it's something that spread to the broader culture. So even if you are not of Mexican descent, you still know the Llorona stories and a lot of people believe them. Well, and then the, the concept of a drowned woman or a woman who has drowned her children and then herself, you can find that theme in, I would say almost every culture around the world. Yeah. Especially cultures that are very tied to water. Yeah, there's even Greek mythology has the the concept of the the woman who drowns her children for revenge, and then you know is either struck down by the gods or is cursed by the gods or kills herself. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's an old and common idea. It is. So I invited you on specifically because of your podcast, Paranormal Archaeology, mm -hmm. and I, I find it very interesting. You and I cover similar ground, but we do so in somewhat different ways. I love the name of your podcast, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that was because my wife, who frequently shows better judgment than me, struck down my first few choices for the title. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she uh, I, I brought up several things. I said, oh, this would be great. No, that's a terrible idea. In, in retrospect, she was absolutely right. Those were terrible titles. <laughs> now I'm curious. So I've listened to a fair amount of what you've released for Paranormal Archaeology, but for my listeners, can you give a brief description of what it is that you choose to do with this show? So Paranormal Archaeology, it's not that new of a concept, really. It's just I have given it a name 
that I feel describes it pretty well. But I also did it because it's kind of a sexy name. You know, it's paranormal archaeology. (laughs) But what we're really doing is looking at how archaeological sites are just real world sites and objects or artifacts become paranormal and how human interaction with those sites and objects changes once that object or site has decided that it's paranormal. So an object like a cup, for example, your coffee cup, you have a relationship with your coffee cup. You expect your coffee cup to be a coffee cup and you expect that coffee cup to do certain things. Um, And this is part of where the whole like life cycle of an artifact comes in. You know, this this coffee cup has been made to be a coffee cup and it is now a coffee cup and that is what it does. It holds coffee, it, it takes it to my mouth and I drink it and then it is a cup. But at some point that coffee cup could become cursed or maybe it's not your cup, maybe it's your father's cup and your father passes away. And now this coffee cup is no longer just a coffee cup. Now it represents your uh, deceased father. And so now we've attached some kind of personal emotion to this object. And then we can take it one step further and be like, every time that coffee cup of your father's is in the room, things happen. Maybe you smell your father's cologne or you hear your father's footsteps or something to that degree. And so now that object has become a trigger object for a haunting episode or a paranormal episode, which makes the the coffee cup paranormal. Whether you believe in these things or not is is absolutely irrelevant to paranormal archaeology because we're not studying personal belief. We're studying how the interaction to that object has changed. So now that you believe that that coffee cup is somehow attached to a paranormal happening, now you're going to treat that coffee cup differently. You may not drink out of it. You may think that drinking out of it might cause uh, some kind of bad happening or or good one, whatever. I mean, your interaction with it now has changed. Um, Maybe you put it in a place of honor because it's your father's coffee cup. You want to see it. You want to remember things. You don't put it through the dishwasher anymore. You only hand wash it. Interactions with that object change. And it's not just belief in the object being paranormal. If you take that coffee cup and you take it to a skeptic and you say, this coffee cup is haunted by my, my deceased father. So this is a haunted coffee cup. Even if I don't believe in ghosts and I don't believe that your coffee cup is haunted, my interactions with that coffee cup have now changed because I have been told that that coffee cup is paranormal now. And so now I'm going to act skeptically towards the coffee cup. I might actually try to drink a cup of coffee out of it just to prove to you that it's not a paranormal coffee cup. Would I have cared otherwise? Even as a skeptic and your interactions with a paranormal site or a paranormal object changes completely. If anybody watches BuzzFeed, uh, what is the show that's on BuzzFeed? I I know the one you're talking about. I've watched several episodes of it myself. The fellow who believes in pretty much everything and the one who thinks it's all nonsense and they go out to various locations. I adore that show. I absolutely love it. I think they're hilarious, but they're perfect examples of what I'm talking about because yeah, one of them does absolutely believe that every every place they go to is haunted to the gills. I mean, he even carries around squirt guns full of holy water because he thinks he's going to like squirt a demon in the face with holy water. Never has happened. He has freaked himself out a few times, but it's never happened. But the skeptic guy whose name completely escapes me, you know, he walks around these properties screaming things like, come on, ghosts, attack me, throw something at me. 
demons possess me or he'll uh one time they went to the haunted museum and they went to see the doll annabelle and the the skeptic guy stood in front of the doll of annabelle and was like come on annabelle kill me i don't believe in you you know that kind of stuff would you have done that would he have gone anywhere else and seen the same doll because it's just a raggedy ann doll gone somewhere seen a raggedy ann doll and started you know smack talking the annabelle you know this random doll that he finds no you wouldn't because you have no reason to but now that these objects in these places are paranormal in nature now he is interacting with them even though he doesn't believe that they are he's interacting with them as if they were one of the things that i think is really pretty interesting throughout history is that we have this tendency to view something that we don't believe in symbolically just as the people who uh, do believe in it will interact with it. So, you know, standing there and yelling at the Annabelle doll is in some ways similar to, you know, smashing the icons of the religion of the people you just conquered. You may not believe those things have any mystical power, but by doing it, you're symbolically showing that you're above whatever it is that people are attributing to that. Yeah. I'm like, my gods are stronger than your gods. And to prove that I'm going to destroy the images of your God who cannot strike me down because my gods are more powerful or, you know, just blatant disregard for other people's religion. You're still destroying the religious objects because you don't want them finding comfort or power or whatever they find from these objects. You're, you're destroying them to prevent that religious practice. Mm -hmm. so. so one of the things that you mentioned in your first episode on Annabelle, the doll, <laughs> which is a fun lesson. Spent a lot of time with Annabelle. <laughs> One of the things that you bring up is that paranormal lore is very often a type of oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And one of the statements you make is that it's a less stable oral tradition than say a lot of Native American or Australian Aborigine or anything of that sort. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to discuss that a bit. So what I mean by it's less stable is that it is more prone to social change than a true oral tradition would be like a true oral tradition like a native american tradition or just any other indigenous or first person oral tradition anywhere in the world those are usually passed down and preserved in the passing because the details of the story are important so the story is very important and the details are very important because this is you know, where our people came from, how our people developed, why our people are special. You know, these are the rules of our society. We don't do these things because of X, Y, Z. We do do these things because of X, Y, Z. Paranormal lore, like ghost stories, are very subject to change. They're very subject to regionality. Uh, we talked about the La Llorona story and the whole concept of, you know, the woman drowning her children being a very common theme in ghost and folklore throughout the world. And I'm not saying that somewhere there was, you know, the origination story. There's only ever been one story and it's been disseminated throughout the years. <laughs> it's just a very common theme right. that gets picked up throughout all of these different cultures, but it also changes. I mean, how many different versions, for example, are there of the La Llorona story? Off the top of my head, I can think of five different ones within a two-hour drive of where I live. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's the thing. Sometimes she drowns her children because her husband cheated on her. Sometimes she doesn't drown her children. Sometimes the children have drowned on their own. Or they've been killed by bandits. Yeah, exactly. But the, the outcome is always the same. 
So that kind of a thing. And even today, you know, the crybaby bridge. Why is it the crybaby bridge? Sometimes it's because, you know, there's an abandoned child there. Sometimes it's because uh, a pregnant woman hung herself. The origin story of why something becomes haunted changes, you know, pretty much with every retelling. So it's not stable, but at the same time, if I didn't tell you the story to begin with, you wouldn't be able to then tell it to someone else. So, you know, I tell mm -hmm. you that this bridge is haunted because there's a goat man that lives underneath it. When you retell it, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that this bridge is haunted because there's like a troll that looks like a goat that lives underneath it. And then the next person tells the story and it's like, oh yeah, the bridge is haunted by a demon goat, you know? And it's, it's the same element is there, but it changes as to why that element is there. One of the things that occurred to me, my oral traditions of all sorts are open to change. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about them is there tends to be a denial of change amongst the people who hold them, even as they're changing them. True. But also there tends to be, you know, clear reasons for changes. Two examples that come to my mind immediately on the Oregon, California border, there's the Klamath and they would hold a shaman's dance every winter. And during the dance, they would have a portion where people told stories. And of course the story would be different than it was the previous year. And then everybody would discuss it and then come to consensus as to what this year's version of the story was. And the anthropologist who I think was Leslie Spear, but I do not recall with certainty, actually, at, uh, this is early 20th century. So they asked one of the people, well, which version's the true version? You know, thinking of it from a very European, right. you know, you have your holy books and they do not change. And there is the one true story, you know, thinking that that was the way that this culture functioned as well. And the response that they got was, well, last year, this was the true version. This year, this is the true version. There was a group consensus as to what that was. And, um, you know, I know in parts of Australia, there's a position called the lawman whose entire purpose is to essentially oversee or alter oversee changes to or themselves make changes to the oral traditions in order to account for situations that are occurring now. So, you know, you've got groups that 400 years ago were constantly fighting with each other. And now a whole bunch of white convicts come in and they're a bigger threat. So we got to get together. So, hey, do you know the story about how kangaroo and some canid from Australia, you know, the story about how they ended up becoming friends to fight the bigger threat. Right. By contrast, it seems like the paranormal story tends to change based on a mix of foibles of human memory and sensationalism. I think like there can, there can be intentional changes to Charles Manson's television, for example, or actually the, the Divic box is a much better example of this. The conscious creation of a story around something that is not real or paranormal and then disseminating that throughout whatever the, 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 the social media network as this was. So the, I guess my, my thing is, is like the difference between a more traditional cultural oral tradition, like we've been discussing, they serve a purpose. And yeah, sometimes there is that denial of change. Oh, no, this has always been the story. The story's always been like this. And it's like, well, nothing's uncorruptible, including, you know, mm. biblical texts and, and religious texts, you know, they, they get changed, but it, it still serves the purpose of guiding society. Mm -hmm. Something like the Divic Box, 
I should probably explain to listeners who may not know the Dybbuk box was something that showed up for sale, if I recall correctly, on eBay. It was, I believe, a box for containing wine bottles, but the seller had created a story about it being enchanted through a Jewish ritual to contain a demonic entity that he called a divic, yeah, which causes that actually, if he hadn't chosen the word divic, uh, he probably wouldn't have caused as many issues. But the consensus is is that the divic is a, it is a real thing in Jewish mysticism, but and it is an evil spirit. But the divic does not possess inanimate objects; it only possesses people, usually women. And if you really look at the stories around the Divic, it usually possesses women who don't want to get married in the arranged marriages that they were usually put through. And so the Divic would possess them and they would, you know, then become ineligible for marriage. I don't know what the bonus was of getting possessed by the Divic, but there's an interesting trend in that story. This guy's saying that he took that evil spirit and put it in a box, an inanimate box. You know, he tricked it into possessing the box and then he contained it inside of there. He doesn't claim that he did it. He claims that it is a World War II relic from Jewish family that escaped Germany during World War II. And so there's this really elaborate story. It's kind of a heroic object. You know, it survived a war. It came across uh, you know, the, the the ocean with this family that was fleeing from evil. So it, right there, it becomes like this example of like survival and that kind of stuff, you know. And then it was held by this grandmother who passes it on to her granddaughter. Actually, I believe she said she wanted to be buried with it. And then the family decided not to bury her with it. Again, the story changes. And why would you want to be buried with an evil spirit? Well, this, she wanted to be buried with the evil spirit because it was so evil that it could not be contained. So she wanted to be buried with it to monitor the box in the afterlife. Like I say, the story changes. And yeah. clearly whoever made the story doesn't know what a divic is, doesn't understand Jewish mysticism. The word that's written on the box is... I think it's the name of Yahweh or something, or it's a distinguishable word, which in Jewish mysticism, when they use writing, it's often not legible in that it, it looks like gibberish or it sounds like gibberish because it only has meaning to basically the caster. So the fact that anyone else was able to read it right there pretty much is like, well, it's not really, it's not real. So there's a lot of little inconsistencies that kind of prove that the story isn't authentic but since nobody knows these things or not enough people know these things, this guy was able to put it up on the internet, say it has a, has a spirit in it. It's just a wine cabinet that he couldn't sell at his antique store. And I guess some college kids bought it. And then, you know, they thought they bought a haunted box with a demon inside of it. And, you know, they're a bunch of dude bros and they're having a frat party and they're like, oh, let's open up the box. And they do. And then several of them start having experiences, you know, again, if they had just bought a wine cabinet, you know, they wouldn't have had any issues. Mm -hmm. If they had bought the same wine cabinet, knowing that it was a wine cabinet and not thinking that it was a demon-possessed box, they wouldn't have had any issues with it. So again, that goes back to my point of their interactions with this box changed because they thought it was paranormal. But more importantly, this guy created the story of the Divic box just to sell this box. He even admits it. Mm -hmm. Even after admitting it publicly, people still believe that the Divic box is possessed. What's his name with the Haunted Museum? Purchased the original, what he believes is the original Divic box 
and he even tells you the story of the original Divic box, even though it has been discredited by the guy who made it. Mm -hmm. He still has it in his museum and still thinks it's possessed. <laughs> I, I believe the uh, the fellow who has the museum is, if I recall correctly, Zach Baggins. Thank you. Yes. Zach who Baggins. I, I was disappointed to discover is not a hobbit. I know. I always think that, too, when I hear his name. But uh, to go back to the Dybbuk box, you have a bit of folklore that's created to sell the box. And it could easily be created for another reason. I mean, it could be creepypasta where, you know, there's the community of people who create the story and then put it out. Slenderman. They all know it's fake, but sometimes it'll leak out of that community. Slenderman, yeah, as you say, is a great example of this where there's people who genuinely believe in Slenderman. The Dybbuk box is in a lot of ways an excellent example as well, even though it wasn't a creepypasta. It's something that somebody made up. Similar, yeah. And that they've now admitted is fake, but you still hear people bring it up as this, you know, absolute truth. You can still go online and find people on YouTube. I, this is a, a thing on YouTube. I don't know how popular it is now, but it was very, very popular again in the late 2010s. But there are people who purchase Dybbuk boxes off the yeah, dark I web and then they open <laughs> them online and some of them just like gag and choke and carry on that some of them will go through the elaboration of oh there's a spirit in my my apartment now you guys i gotta film this now i gotta show you that like you know one of them has a seizure seems to have a seizure because the the, the demon's trying to possess him i mean and this is where i come in and i'm like i don't i don't know if these people are believing that they are actually having these episodes like if this is a real thing i don't know why you would put it on the internet after experiencing it but but again because they think they bought a haunted box some of them might actually be having unexplained episodes that they are associating with the box because they think they're haunted mm -hmm. and it changes their interactions with the box would you have bought the box if it was just a cigar box and not a cigar box that has a demon sealed inside of it yeah and that's i think is really gets to the point of why you call it paranormal archaeology is that you're not just talking about the stories themselves but rather how those stories affect the material world and people's interaction with the material world and that's the archaeological connection there is because we're talking about material objects and human interaction that falls within the purview of archaeology because archaeology studies material culture and material mm -hmm. culture is anything that's man-made or anything that has been altered by human hands yeah so. i've long thought yes if people believe that an object is haunted they're going to treat it differently it hadn't occurred to me uh, until you pointed it out, but it is pretty obvious that even non-believers will interact with it differently. An example from my own life is years back, a friend of mine and I, when we lived in uh, Santa Cruz, California, there's a story there, the white lady of, not a not the white lady of the typical sort of, you know, La Llorona, but she is a vengeful white lady ghost that hangs out in this area. And allegedly, if you go to this one cemetery and you flash your bright lights on the, uh, gate at a certain time of night then she'll appear so of course my friend and i do this yeah and you know here we are two guys in at the time in our early 30s would we be doing this if we hadn't been told this place is haunted no do we believe this place is haunted no but nonetheless there we are exactly. being a couple of jackasses <laughs> doing something we absolutely wouldn't have done otherwise exactly. because 
whether we believe it or not, we've come under the cultural spell of the story associated with this location. Exactly. It, it, we there's a there's a phenomena called lore tripping. I'd always heard it referred to as legend tripping, but uh, lore tripping seems like a perfectly good right it, term for it as well. It, it's but yeah, exactly. It, it's the same thing. You know, you you go around, and I've done it. We've all we all probably have. Oh yeah. You you hear about a couple different haunted locations. You go around. Like uh, my partner had to go work in North Carolina down in the Raleigh Durham area a few months ago, mm-hmm. and I was like, all right, fine. So I got online, I looked up all of these different ghost stories around the area or haunted stories around the area. I was unfortunately too late in the year to go on any of the ghost tours, <laughs> uh, which sucked because that would have been a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I then spent the, I think we were there for three days. He had to work. So while he was at his job doing his thing, I was going around to all these different locations and interacting with the things that are supposed to be interacted with there's a statue whose head technically who's supposed to its head is supposed to rotate in the cemetery that one was actually really interesting and i got alert i got really good footage of not its head rotating but of the statue itself and then i talked to the um uh, historian that works at that cemetery and asked about the statue itself and asked them what they knew about the ghost stories surrounding the statues and they were kind of aware of some of them but not all of them and i thought that was really interesting too but would I have gone to that cemetery if I hadn't gone specifically looking for this statue? Probably not. Would I have gone to this particular statue? Probably not. Would I have then gone and asked the historian at the cemetery about this statue? Definitely not. But also the statue itself, people interacted with it. They're, they interact with it differently. When I went to see it, it's a, the gravesite of a woman who passed away in no spectacular way. I think she got consumption or something. I mean, it was a very typical way to die in the late Victorian era. And her husband had this really beautiful statue made. And it's supposed to be in her likeness, but that was her, her headstone was this full-sized, really pretty statue. I'm not knocking that. But for whatever reason, people started associating the statue with all this different paranormal phenomena. And at one point, they claim that the head of the statue will actually rotate all the way around on her neck but only on halloween at midnight so it's like there's there's no way to to verify that one but because people think the statue is paranormal when you go and visit the cemetery there's coins all over the statue any flat surface or curved surface that can hold a coin there are, there's nickels, there's dimes, there's quarters, there's dollar coins. There were $5 bills that were rolled up and stuffed in some of the crevices. There, there was a lot of monetary value stuck to the statue or, or collected in, on the statue because it was deemed paranormal. And I was like, that's a lot. I mean, it's not like there's hundreds of dollars here, but there's probably enough there to buy lunch. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why hasn't this money been removed? You know, like I know with fountains, they'll go in and they'll clean the fountains out and they'll take the money and they, they do something with it. So why aren't they doing that here? I was able to talk to the groundskeepers briefly and they were like, yeah, we just don't touch that, which I find odd. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you find a coin on the ground, any other circumstance, you find a $5 bill on the ground, you're going to pick it up. There's a $5 bill sticking out of the statue and you're not going to touch it. I asked the historian about it and he was like, I didn't realize it was collecting that much money. And I'm like, well, yeah, there's a significant amount of money there, but my curiosity is why won't anyone take it? Um, Even I didn't take it. 
mm-hmm. there was nothing stopping me, you know, and it's not like you're stealing from anyone in particular, but I didn't do it. I actually left a quarter. So it's just kind of one of those things. If I didn't believe that statue was paranormal, I wouldn't have gone there. If I hadn't seen the offerings being, cause that's what they are. They're offerings. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't seen the offerings, I wouldn't have left one of my own. The reason that money is still there is because A, the statue is is deemed paranormal, and B, it's a grave. These are considered gifts to the dead. Most cultures, including most European cultures, will not steal from the dead because Mm -hmm. it's bad. It's bad luck. There's ruined this taboo, even if you are somebody who doesn't believe in the afterlife. Exactly. When you were describing it, I immediately thought, well, I wouldn't take the money either. I don't believe in the afterlife. I don't believe that any thing bad's going to happen it's just it's tacky you know right, exactly but why is it tacky it, it, yeah and it's it's tacky because it's taking from the dead who don't care <laughs> don't care <laughs> one of the things that i think your story illustrates is that there are definite material effects in the world of belief in some of these stories it, you know fairly minor things like for some reason, a lot of money gets shoved in this location. Uh, Robert the doll in Key West, Florida, you've got, you know, letters from people apologizing to Robert for whatever slight they think they caused. But, you know, we mentioned briefly Zach Baggins in his haunted museum. From what I can gather, it's just a ramshackle, weird collection of a bunch of unconnected objects that if we stumbled across something like that as archaeologists, we just wonder why the hell is all this random crap here? But it is there for a very particular reason. Yeah, yeah. It, I think Zach Baggins Haunted Museum, I've seen people take tours and take video of the inside of it because I think you either have to be invited or you have to buy a very expensive ticket to go, which I'm willing to do. But it is kind of tacky inside. He does display things in very irreverent ways or ways that I would deem irreverent because I have been taught not to do that. Mm-hmm. But it is a random collection of things that unless you already knew why it was there, like, uh, I don't know if I put the rocking chair episode up yet. You did. It's uh, pretty entertaining. Yeah. So he's got a haunted rocking chair there. I have a lot of questions about the haunted rocking chair that extend beyond the the television episode. But the the general premise is, is there's this rocking chair. It's apparently possessed by demons even though it's been exercised baggins claims that people have had quote-unquote episodes when they are interacting with the chair he doesn't elaborate as to what those episodes are he, he doesn't explain what the chair's influence looks like on his employees and visitors but it was bad enough i guess at some point that he claims that he took this chair off display did something with it and then i guess he said like six months or maybe i just did the math but six-ish months after he removed it from display he put it back on display so something must have occurred to change the status of the chair again i don't know what but if you walk through the store you walk through his museum and it's just like a rocking chair a a old rabbit ears television mm-hmm like it's from the eighties. I had the exact same model when I was mm-hmm. living in my first apartment. You know, it's that kind of stuff. There's no connection between any of it unless you know the stories, but unless you know the stories, you have no reason to care. 
it's it's just a zenith television it's it's just like any other television in the world but once i tell you that it's marilyn manson's television i still don't understand how he got it mailed out of the jail charles charles manson oh god damn it it (laughs) but yeah it's it's manson's television Ooh, spooky Well, and, you know, I think that this also touches on uh, something that's not necessarily paranormal, but does get into the paranormal, which is the collection of murderabilia. Yes, that's very much what that is. Yeah. Even if you don't believe that Charles Manson's television has, you know, his brainwaves put into it through an electronic demonic process and listeners, that is absolutely what is claimed about this television. (laughs) Yeah, that. But even if you don't believe that, there are people who want it simply because it was owned by Charles Manson. Well, in the in the episode, he mentions that the television was left. You have to watch the whole little movie clip that's in between the beginning and the end of the video. But there's a a, a gentleman who somehow got associated with the television, who was a, a grad student in psychology, I think, who was studying Manson. They can't trust grad students. Same grad students always opening up black holes of doom. For some reason, Manson sent him this television. After receiving this television, the gentleman in question apparently attempted to murder his stepdad, but was unsuccessful in it, and then drove his car with the television in it out into the middle of the desert. And then the last scene of the show, I think, is him walking away into like the the hazy smoke, the hazy heat of the desert, because I think this all happened in Nevada or something. Mm-hmm. In the very tail end of the the episode, there's like the, you know the white dialogue that pops up. It says that a collector purchased the car and the television that was still in the car, and there's only one reason why you would do that. Mm-hmm. You know, either you knew that television was supposed to be connected to Manson or you wanted this attempted murderer's car or you purchased a car that had an old Zenith television in it and you wanted to sell it. And so you decided to associate it with Charles Manson because you knew somebody would buy it. I mean, we can't rule out fraud, but even though it's fraud, it's still creating a backstory for an unknown object. And Jeb Card talks about this in his book, Spooky Archaeology. Mm-hmm. But when an object loses its history, then we have to fill in the blanks. And when we fill in the blanks, we can fill it in with anything. So this guy gets a random Zenith television inside this, I think it was an El Camino or something that he purchased. And he's like, what the hell do I do with this? Ah, I say it's from Charles Manson and then I can sell it for buku bucks and someone will buy it. And somebody did. So, you know, that kind of a thing. One of the things that I found really quite interesting that you pointed out in different episodes of your podcast, an object either needs a backstory or it needs to have a unknown story so you can fill in a blank in order for it to really take on the supernatural connotations. Right. And there's some exceptions to this every now and again, you'll hear about, you know, this house is haunted, but we're the first family to ever live there and it was newly built and nothing happened on this land. So we don't know what it is, but that's the exception. It's far more common for the object to either have a mysterious background. uh, You specifically bring up things bought from antique shops where you have no idea who the former owner was or for it to be something that uh, you've been told has a particular history, whether that's true or not. Right. So the television was owned by Charles Manson. This 
rocking chair was in a house where there was domestic strife. So we're going to say it was a demon, but something that you can imprint on the object. So it becomes more than just simply an object. I think a really good example, I keep going back to Zach Baggins show, but it's just like, so well, when somebody gives you a show full of examples to illustrate your point, you why not use it? Yeah, I'm just like, this This is my show, only from the other side. Yeah. The very first episode is, I think it's like the dollhouse from hell or something. Yes, your episode of that was also pretty entertaining. So Yeah, it, it was a really cool dollhouse. I like miniatures. I like dollhouses. I was like, oh, this is fun. And it, it kind of was refreshing just in general. But the premises of it is Zach goes into an antique shop. He sees a dollhouse. He claims he went home and didn't think anything of it, had a dream or something. And then he went back and bought the dollhouse because it spoke to him somehow. And so then he brings the dollhouse back to his house and just starts filling it up with all of these teeny tiny little like demons and satanic flags and little tiny skull. I mean, it's a dollhouse. So all these things are miniature. And I'm just like, squee. <laughs> But it's also like, why would you do that? And apparently he also had, he's like, why am I doing this? And so instead of just being like, okay, apparently I just want to decorate this house like a, a satanic house. He decides now that the dollhouse is somehow connected to the Westerfield house, I think mm -hmm. it was. Westerfield house is considered a paranormal location because it is associated with two different individuals who were big in the satanic worship scene so it's it's got this story of being this site for satanic worship and of course if you know it's all in the basement and so now the westerfield house itself is considered why is it always the basement because basements are creepy yeah fair enough uh, because we have a fear of the underground so the westerfield house is a real location in the real world but it is also really considered haunted by mm -hmm. groups of people. People really do go there believing that it is some kind of satanic Mecca. But Zach decides that this random dollhouse that he purchased at this random uh, antique shop looks exactly like the Westerfield house in real life. Which it doesn't. They're, it does they're not. similar, but they're not, yes. they're not the close replica he claims. No, he, he claims that it is an exact one-to-one -one replica. It is very clearly not. And also there's no way to know, he has already admitted to altering the dollhouse. So we don't know how much of the similarity it has to the Westerfield house is manufactured. Now that he thinks that the dollhouse is an exact copy of the Westerfield house, and of course he's putting demonic things inside of it, therefore Satan, Satan and the devil is connecting them. Then he calls in a psychic who we don't know who it is and it doesn't matter calls in a psychic who basically comes in and confirms for him the belief that the dollhouse has a portal in it that connects it to the real world location of the Westerfield house. Now the dollhouse is basically the voodoo doll version of the Westerfield house. And, oh, and also because it's a demonic portal, whoever owned the dollhouse before Zach, which we don't know who that is, there's no backstory on this dollhouse. We don't know the history of this dollhouse whatsoever. But the psychic tells him whoever had the dollhouse before him suffered great domestic strife. And that's, that's where we leave that at. So from that, Zach creates a little mini story. And again, you have to watch the whole episode. But it's basically... <laughs> It's basically a, a little mini horror movie of this guy who buys the dollhouse to try to connect with his daughter after his wife has passed away and things devolve to the end where the 
guy tries, I think he successfully decapitates his daughter in order to revive his dead wife. There, there is no connection with this dollhouse and anything in this story, but Zach believes there is, or at least we have to, we have to assume that Zach believes that there is, and we have to assume that the psychic believes that what they said was true and correct as well. So from nothing, from literal nothing, we've created this demonic possessed dollhouse that caused a murder in its past. What's really fascinating is the stages that this passes through. You start with an object, a fairly mundane object. Right. All of us have seen at some point in time or another. I will note that there is a movie called Amityville Dollhouse that came out quite some time ago. And I kind of, I have to wonder if that inspired Zach Baggins here. I need to watch this movie now. But so you've got the dollhouse that's bought. You don't know the history of it. Exactly. Zach Baggins, for whatever reason, decides to start decorating the dollhouse to look like, you know, the most heavy metal Dungeons and Dragons prop ever. Really cute. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And then you have the psychic come in and give a very vague backstory. But still verifies his beliefs. Right. But also it's compatible with his beliefs that there's something weird about this house. Right, right, right. But what the psychic says is actually, again, it's a fairly mundane thing. It's domestic strife. Well, even happy families sometimes have domestic strife. Exactly. Then on top of that, you get like just piles until you have what I'm assuming are some fiction writers writing for his show, uh, which we should probably say the show is called Zach Baggins Haunted Museum. It's available streaming. But uh, you've got some fiction writers creating a short film, which then has a parent murdering their kid. So you you start with something very mundane and then you kind of accrete these layers of things that you know are going quite small, really pretty vague, not in of themselves all that interesting, more quirky than anything. Right. Until it sets the setting for a television show to be produced where they completely go off the rails. Yep. But now that television show, it, it may not last. It may not be that that story is permanently associated with it, but there is a fair chance yeah. that because it became this television show, it becomes the story permanently associated exactly. that becomes accepted as true. Exactly. And and who knows how many times that story is now going to be retold and how it's going to change from retelling to retelling. I mean, and it's just it just keeps looping back to everything we've been talking about in the ep- in this show. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it builds on it. But that's the thing. Now that anybody thinks that that dollhouse is a, a portal to hell, basically, when they go to see this dollhouse, they're going to have a sensation around it, especially if they believe they're going to experience something or maybe they see a demon or, you know, maybe they see the murder scene. I mean, maybe Zach's gone as far as to recreate the little murder scene from the television show in the dollhouse now to kind of just connect the dollhouse to the television show. Now, when you go there, you're going to see that you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember somewhere that there was a murder in the dollhouse. And this must be, you know, how it was when he bought it. If you don't recall him mentioning, because it's very quick that he says it, but he does admit to altering the dollhouse. Mm -hmm. But if you don't remember that, you're going to be like, oh, man, he bought the dollhouse and it looked like this. Cool, man. Or, you know, or, oh, that's horrific or whatever. This was owned by the most metal eight-year-old girl ever. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's the creation from out of nothing of something paranormal, but it is because that dollhouse has no backstory. 
if mm-hmm. Zach had bought that house and had been like, yeah, this was, you know, little Jenny's dollhouse that her uncle gave her on her eighth birthday. And, you know, she decorated it in this Barbie style because she really wanted the Barbie dollhouse, but we couldn't afford that. So we got her this one instead and blah, 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 blah. I mean, if you knew the history of the dollhouse and it was just that mundane, would it be haunted? One of the things that uh, you also discuss, and I think it applies to some extent to this dollhouse, but also you know, even more to things like Annabelle the doll, is that there's a lot of overlap between how we've been taught to treat things religiously and how we treat things that we consider paranormal. And that, again, has very real effects on the physical world. So in the case of the dollhouse, you know, is it something that you go to see? Do you, you know, make a pilgrimage to Zach Baggins Museum to see that or other objects? When I was in London, uh, I went to the British Museum because, of course, you're going to go to the British right, Museum. Right, right, right. But I had to go see the Crystal Skull, which isn't, I mean, it's a real artifact yeah. that it was actually made by people. It's not from South America. It was no. made in Germany. Yep. <laughs> you know? And, the, and, However, and I believe the museum even admits to that, I think. Oh, they do. They've got a display explaining uh, that yeah. it was uh, sold to them by, if I recall correctly, I think it was uh, Boban. Mm-hmm. But you know, at the time that they bought it, they thought it was genuinely from South America. Now they've got a display of showing that. But you know, I made a point of going and visiting the Crystal Skull, even though the the museum has it shoved away in a corner where you know all embarrassing things should be. Ah, bring that shit out front and center. I want I want that I want that right where I can see it. I want everyone to walk past that and read that story. I was actually embarrassed to ask where it was. I knew it was at the museum. I knew it was on display, but I was embarrassed to ask where it was. And my wife just said, I'll go ask one of the docents. So she did. And we went to they see it. They probably get asked that all the time, honestly. Oh, I mean, yeah. She, she said that that's what they told her. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you do get people making essentially pilgrimages to see some of these mm-hmm. types of things, to interact with them. So obviously it has an effect on the material world in that people are physically going but also uh you bring up that the treatment of the items at the location where they're kept is very often similar to the way that uh religious icons or relics are treated yes and if you'd be willing to speak a bit about that some people might be familiar with how relics and, and icons are treated because you it may be part of your culture already um but the whole concept of a religious object you don't treat objects that are, for lack of a better term, imbued. You do not treat them like everyday objects. They are special. They are the house of a spirit or they're the house of an entity or with like reliquies, you know, a saint is in this reliquy. We must treat it differently than anything else. If you're aware of what Wicca is, or if you practice any kind of like new age Wiccanism today, the creation of imbued objects also alters how an object will be treated, even if it's just a bag that's full of some shiny rocks and some sticks you picked up out of your backyard. It's now a magical object that has to be treated differently or else it's not magical. Same concept with religious objects. Some people, uh, like with the Buddhist statues, will go as far as to the, the statue is bathed it is dressed, it is provided with food because it needs to eat. It is treated as if it is a living thing that has needs and those needs must be met. And you see very similar behavior towards 
haunted objects or imbued objects that are now paranormal in nature. The Annabelle doll is, it is on display. You can see it, but if you believe the story that is around the Annabelle doll, it is inside a box that is built out of a holy wood and the glass itself is from a Catholic church's window. And before she was placed into this box, the box was blessed by a Catholic priest. And according to lore, there are rites of exorcism or rites of some variety that are performed on the box and the doll every month to keep the demon that is inside the doll complacent or quiet or whatever. Because the belief is that there is a demon inside the doll, the doll has to be treated differently or else the demon will get out and it will cause trouble and it could potentially kill people because that's the story around the Annabelle doll, whether you believe it or not. And we do have to, in, in paranormal archaeology, you have to assume that the people telling you the story believe what they are saying whether they actually do or not. Like there are things that Zach Baggins says that I don't believe he actually believes. That's my personal belief on the matter. But when it comes to examining these things, I have to go with the assumption that he does believe these things because we're looking at behavior. We're not looking at belief. The Divic box, to go back to that one, because mm -hmm. we, we've brought it up earlier. The end of the story of the Divic box is that the final owner of it supposedly contacted a rabbi who basically told him how to exercise it via the Jewish fashion, which I don't believe is a thing. But again, he built a box for the box out of, again, holy wood. It had to be wrapped in gold foil and then buried some way special, I think at a crossroads or something, which again, not Jewish. But these things had to happen in order to contain the demon inside the box because the demon can't be gotten rid of. So this is another idea that you see in religious objects that once an object is inhabited by a spirit or inhabited by an entity, it is permanent. It doesn't leave. Uh, even destroying the object does not destroy the entity or the spirit. It just destroys the physical representation in the real world of it. And it will find a new home. It will find a new host. Again, the Divinity Box is completely made up. Mm -hmm. We don't know about the Annabelle doll. There's arguments on both sides. It doesn't really matter. But in order to keep that demon at bay, it has to go through these very elaborate steps. I personally, if I step outside of my observation, I don't think that really happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe the glass is really from a church. Maybe it's not. It's very easy to buy woods of any variety online for crafting purposes. So building a yep. box out of a particular kind of wood is not that difficult. It's just that kind of stuff. It's elaborate enough to alter, again, the behavior around the object. In the real world, a reliquy is a object that has a, a piece of a human being in it, usually a bone or hair that is associated with a saint, any of the saints. There's many saints. It's mm -hmm. usually a Catholic thing. But there are other religions that have things that are either nearly identical or at least you know, pretty close. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, like again, going back to I think some forms of Tibetan Buddhism, or maybe it's um Chinese. I don't know. Anyway, I, there's there was a practice at one point of basically mummifying a dead monk mm -hmm. and then building a statue around them, and then that was on display. Mm -hmm. It has human remains in it, and it is considered 
to still be that monk. That monk has now ascended. It has become like Buddha. I Please don't come for me. I don't know all the details of this, but I know <laughs> these objects exist. But because this object is now special, it has to be treated special. It is, again, bathed. It is fed. It is moved during certain times of the year. You know, it is displayed a certain way. It, ha it gets flowers. It gets candies. It gets incense, you know things you would give to someone that you respected or someone that you wanted favor from, because that's exactly what you're doing. We see this at sites as well when someone passes away. You know, why, why are we putting up a cross at the side of the road where someone has been injured or someone has died? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a memorial, we are, but what are we memorializing? We're memorializing the person. A lot of those sites will now, from that point forward, have a shadow person associated with them. And there will be other people who see these memorials and who will stop and be like, oh, it's a memorial. I'll add some flowers. I don't know this person, but it's a grave or a memorial. I'm going to add some flowers because that's the polite thing that you do. Why is it polite? It's just a cross stuck in the ground. Why, why do I even care? Because I was taught not to be tacky. Why is it tacky? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. there, there's layers of cultural expectation and history, most of which we're not consciously aware of baked into every one of these things. Exactly. Every year when I attended the, the Society for California Archaeology meetings, there's at least one and sometimes more than one forum for Native American community members. And anybody's welcome to come, but basically you go and you hear what they have to say. And one year I was at it, they spoke about various New Age and Neo-Pagan people going to areas that were considered sacred and leaving what they considered trash behind. It was offerings. It was usually sage bundles, but it could be other things as well. But the uh, Native American uh, representatives there were very clear this was trash, that a bunch of white people were leaving behind. And why don't they knock that off? Don't they know that their magic's nonsense and so on? Basically, it was, you know, a half hour diatribe on that. As somebody who's actually had to clean out at least one of these locations, I wholeheartedly agree with the tribal representatives that this was a real pain. That same day, it was actually the next uh, symposium I went to, they had papers by grad students who were going with different neo-pagan groups and observing their practices and the material remains left behind. And a big part of that was going to areas considered sacred to Native American groups and leaving usually sage, but sometimes other things behind. I encountered the woman who gave uh, that particular paper in the bar afterwards, because all archaeology happens in bars. True. I'm not even much of a drinker and I end up in the bar. I don't drink at all and I still go to the bars. <laughs> But I ended up talking to her and uh, we had this conversation where she's like, oh, you know, they're doing this to show respect. And, right. you know, I said, well, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but immediately before your symposium, there was a panel where it was made pretty clear that this was viewed as very disrespectful. And I'm curious as to what you would think of that. And, you know, her response, maybe the members of the tribes need to recognize what these folks are doing and why it's good. And I'm just thinking... Uh, or choice of words. That's what I think of that. Yeah. It's like, I kind of agree with the sentiment behind those words. Yeah. But there's some history here that you need right. to consider. <laughs> As an archaeologist, I usually almost always come down on the side of the tribes. I cannot think of a time where I haven't. I can't think of a time that I don't say tribal rights above all especially when it comes to things like sacred sites and that kind of stuff. So yeah, we, we should be 
first and foremost, considering what the tribes are asking. And if they're asking you not to do that, you should respect that. Maybe don't do that. Yeah, maybe don't yeah. do that. It's not that hard to not do that. But going back to this, to the sentiment of the person who was at the uh, leading the symposium, the New Age religions, a lot of them are aware of the fact that they are new. Even the ones that claim to be attached to older belief systems, they do understand that they are recreating a facsimile of what they mm -hmm. think the religion might have been like. There's a great book called Creating Prehistory. 100% recommend reading it. It's about the creation of the concept of Druidism, which is, is not supported archaeologically. So Druidism is actually almost completely modern. And I'm sorry if I offended someone, but it's the truth. That can be said about most of the neo-pagan religions. Uh, they are usually created somewhere in the 60s and the 70s, and they've progressed forward. A lot of the, the neo-pagan religions do talk about being respectful of the land that you're on, especially here in the United States, because a lot of them will talk about, you know, honoring the dead and that kind of thing. And that means different things to different people. And honoring sacred sites means different things to different groups. And the living culture group has dominance <laughs> over a site, I would think. But what you get, again, this lore tripping thing, you get people who are following the energies. Uh, Serpent Mound mm -hmm. is a great example of this. People are always going to Serpent Mound, which is a large earthworks, one of the largest earthworks, I believe, in the United States. Some people say it looks like a serpent. Some people say it looks like a sperm. It looks like, <laughs> for the most part, like a big serpent eating an egg. And there's a lot of people who believe that it gives off energy. And so they go there and they dig into the actual earth mound itself to leave offerings, sage bundles, tobacco, crystals, this kind of crap which don't, don't do that because it destroys the integrity of the site. Mm -hmm. But for them, they do believe that they are doing something spiritual, that they are not actually harming, they're actually enhancing in some aspects. So yeah, I, I do not think the tribes need to understand that people are going to come and invade their land and leave trash on it because I think they're very aware of that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I don't well, think we welcome need to, to the last 500 years yeah, of North American history. And I, I don't think they need to be complacent with it. If they don't like it, then they don't like it and they need to, they, they should be vocal about it and they shouldn't be put yeah. down for being vocal about it. I think it's actually us outside of that who need to understand that people are doing this and that they are doing it for what they believe are spiritual reasons or respect reasons. And mm -hmm. maybe we should be educating people to not do that. Yeah. That, that falls on us, not on the tribes. It, it does go back to interacting with a site. Right. And it does have very specific material impacts on the location. Right. You, know, you bring up the roadside uh, memorials or roadside crosses, which I live out in a place where during this time of year, we get very dense fog. Right. And so it's littered with those yeah. and they do accumulate materials yes. fairly rapidly. And if a child was killed there, they very often accumulate toys. Yes. It does create like this mini archaeological site that would be completely nonsensical if you didn't understand the context of it's a memorial location. And these are offerings to either show respect to or appease whoever it was that is killed here. Yeah, the, the appeasement uh, uh, end of that is very interesting to me because there are haunted locations throughout the world, uh, throughout the U.S. especially. Things like haunted asylums, haunted prisons, uh, large facilities, large abandoned facilities are often considered haunted for some strange reason, probably because they're noisy and people don't understand how much noise a building makes even when it's not in use. Mm -hmm. 
but a lot of them will have like hospitals will have the a child a child spirit usually associated at some point with it and if you go on a tour if you watch a video of it you will see that there are the location in the facility where the child spirit is inhabiting a lot of times people who come to visit and are aware of that ahead of time will bring offerings for the child spirit toys candy cards and there will be in these videos and on these tours there will be basically kind of like an altar for the appeasement of the child and it's like why are we doing that why do we feel a need to do that like this we don't know this kid let's assume the child is real mm -hmm. we don't know this kid we don't even know if the kid would like these toys but yet we're still bringing them things we don't know if these things appease the spirit the spirit's still there apparently so what do we what are we appeasing are we just entertaining the spirit i mean what are we doing with these offerings i don't mean to harp on the side of the road things i, I understand why people want to memorialize where they've lost someone that they care about because you see the same behavior in graveyards as well you know people Absolutely. bring offerings especially for the recent dead you know we continue to bring flower wreaths to our our grandparents or our parents when they pass mm -hmm. away for years after they've passed away you know why do i care if someone puts offerings on my grave after i die am i going to become a vengeful spirit if i don't get flowers every valentine's day i mean this is this kind of this these kind of things to think about but it's ingrained almost every culture i know that i can think of leaves offerings or puts grave goods in with their dead yeah i'm an atheist i don't believe in an afterlife when i'm dead i'm going to be too busy being dead to care about <laughs> anything but you know my wife and my daughter and i've had conversations about well what's going to happen and my my take on it is you know what do whatever you want you want to donate my body for research or for organ donation? That's fine. If it'll make you feel better to have me buried somewhere or have me cremated and have the urn placed somewhere, that's okay too. But it's it's really about what you guys need at that point because I'm going to be dead. I do think that a lot of the belief in you know appeasing those that we know, especially, I think it comes down more to us saying something about who we are as a society than it does about the person who's actually deceased. Even, even the uh, cultural idea that you know it's tacky to take things from the grave, that comes down as a way of us stating our ideas of ethics. You know, there are clear lines that we will not cross if we are decent people. Right, 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 right. What what those lines are could be kind of arbitrary, but there are they lines. Are, yeah, they're they're very personal and they're very individual. Um, you know, I, I used to work with a lady who had absolutely no problem taking flowers off of the the, the graves. And she would she's like, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I get a new bouquet every every week. I just go to the graveyard and pick up the flowers. On the one hand, but they're just gonna die. They're just they're just gonna wilt and die and be thrown away by the groundskeepers when they're gone. So what she's doing is basically practical, but also, you know, your initial reaction is, ooh, why, ooh, why would you do that? So it really just comes down to your personal beliefs in it. Well, I'll tell you, we've covered the things I had notes on. You know, we've got a good definition, I think, of what paranormal archaeology is, which is the focus on the material effects of people believing in objects being paranormal. Mm. And I think we've covered, you know, the way that they have similarities to religious locations or objects. I mean, that that's that's what paranormal archaeology is. And that's what I'm trying to do with the, the blog and the videos is I'm, you know, trying to, in an entertaining way, explain to people their beliefs, I guess. Uh, why mm -hmm. why do we do these things? It's, it's what makes us human. 
And right. we need to understand ourselves as humans, I think, because it helps us understand other people. For any listeners who um, are interested in paranormal archaeology or who are interested in your work in pseudo-archaeology, where can they track you down? So the Paranormal Archaeology blog and podcast are very easy to find. You just type in Paranormal Archaeology. They're a little bit more difficult to find because they're so new. But if you type in Paranormal Archaeology blog, it usually pulls up the WordPress site. And also, if you type in Paranormal Archaeology Patreon, that should get you to the Patreon, which is more active. And we'll include links in our show notes. And you don't have to subscribe to the Patreon to read the blogs or to hear the podcasts. It's just where I'm staging things from now on because it's just easier. Archie fantasies or archaeological fantasies. I, if you type that in, you'll find us pretty much on all social media. I am Archie fantasies, A-R-C-H-Y fantasies, all one word, which is also my email. If you want to send me an email, it's just Archie fantasies at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm not as active on Twitter as I have been in the past. I'm on Instagram. I'm starting to get more active on Instagram as I learn how to use it more. The podcast is available on, I believe, all major podcasting platforms, as is the Paranormal Archaeology one. And trying to think of anything else. Oh, the two YouTube channels. I don't think there's a Paranormal Archaeology YouTube channel that I own, but the Archie Fantasies one is there. And I do post the, the Paranormal Archaeology videos on there. I thought about creating a separate channel, but I don't know. It's a lot of maintenance, Yeah, which is the only reason I haven't done it. One thing before we log off, I'd like to say years ago, I got involved in the organized skepticism movement. I actually met Karen Stolz now uh, from Monster Talk through that. We were all members of the uh, Bay Area Skeptics at one point. Nice. At that point in time, I subscribed to a whole lot of different, uh, and I'm saying this to listeners just to give you an idea of what archaeological fantasies is like, if that sounds like it might be interesting. At the time, I had subscribed to a whole bunch of different, you know, skeptic podcasts and most of them basically became the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I don't listen to really any of them anymore because they just became pretty repetitive. And a lot of them became kind of knee-jerk in their reactions to things. I still listen to yours. I still listen to Monster Talk. Yes. And both of you shifted in a way that I thought was pretty interesting, which is that you got away from the, we're just going to debunk things or we're just going to say that we think this stuff's nonsense. And not that you're not willing to say that things are nonsense if you think they are, but you got more into, okay, why do these things keep recurring? Why do people believe these? Which frankly, I think are much more interesting questions. Belief will always be interesting to me because when I'm looking at why other people believe weird things, it makes you self-examine. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people don't like to do it because I don't think we as humans like to look at ourselves but, you know, I, I was trained in anthropology. I've been an archaeologist. It's kind of what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. At the same time that we're examining other cultures and other peoples, we're supposed to be examining ourselves and our own biases and being aware of how our personal beliefs are affecting what we're doing. And, you know, after, after you've gone through the gambit of debunking all of the, you know, popular fringe topics, you can either continue to just keep saying giants aren't real, giants aren't real. Or you can start looking into why people believe giants are real. Well, I'm going to let you go, but thank you very much. You. And uh, maybe I'll have you on my show. I, if you want, I'm perfectly happy to do, that. do that. Just actually. let me know when. Set that up. All right. All right, cool. Thank you again. Have a good day. You too. Bye. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, 
or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!